Hello, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Hopefully you have dried out from yesterday's rain. What a fun day that was, huh? Anyway, today a little bit better. It's going to get colder, but hey, we deal with it. It's January in Detroit. I'll say this over and over again. Coming up on today's program, we've got a lot to talk about. Coming up a little bit later on, I want to talk about rising property values in the city of Detroit, especially in the neighborhoods, and what it means, and also clarify some of the confusion that seems to exist about the relationship between property values and property taxes. It is one of those things that confuses people in the city. I've seen it time and time again. We'll talk a little bit about that and why this is actually a good thing for most people in the city, especially if you're a property owner. Renters, maybe not so much, but we'll get into all of that on today's program. But first, we're going to have a conversation about medical marijuana, legalized recreational marijuana. Where do things stand? There's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of uncertainty, and the supply is limited. So stay with us on The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. We'll tackle it all today. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for being with me on this Thursday. And uh, one of the questions that I've been getting a lot uh, from you in the audience and people who are very confused about this issue is, is what is going on with legalized marijuana? What is happening in the medical marijuana side of things? And what is going on when it comes to the dispensaries here in, in Michigan? We've seen a number of communities who are saying we don't want them, but at the same time, there is still a need out there for people who are prescribed this as medication. They're having trouble finding it. There are supply issues, all kinds of different stuff going on. So I thought I would bring back to the show Michelle Donovan, an attorney with Butts Along, who specializes in a lot of this kind of work and has been following a lot of the trends and is going to give us an update on some new things that are happening to actually ease the shortage. Michelle, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you for having me, and thank you for having me back. Well, and I hope I stated the problem correctly. I mean, I know that there has been a shortage. Um, it seems that the state sort of went backwards a little bit on this when they said, yes, uh, we're going to go forward with this, but uh, they shut down a whole bunch of growing facilities uh, as they try to figure out how to regulate the legal recreational market. It's impacted the medical market, correct? Well, correct. What happened on December 31st of 2018, there was a regulation that was issued that if you were licensed or if you were currently in the process of obtaining your state license and operating under a temporary license for the municipality, you would have to buy from a licensed grower. And because we don't have enough licensed growers in the state of Michigan, that uh, our clients that are licensed or currently in the process of obtaining a license had to close because there's not enough product. There's a shortage. So we have way too much demand and very little supply. So what happened last week is on behalf of one of my clients, the Curing Corner out of River Rouge, who is a licensed state-licensed provisioning center, or as some people refer to as a dispensary, but the correct term is a provisioning center, had to close because she had no product. And also my client, the first licensed provisioning center in Oakland County, the Greenhouse of Wild Lake, mm -hmm. was never able to open. So last Monday, we filed a lawsuit in the name of the Curing Corner as plaintiff, and we filed what's called a declaratory action in the uh, Court of Claims, which hears all cases that pertain to anything that is regulated body by the state of Michigan. So Lara falls under that jurisdiction. Sure. So we asked the court basically to interpret uh, a more defined rule that the product, although they have to buy from a licensed grower, they're not enough. So where can we buy the product from? 
So we asked if the caregiver network could reopen and our licensed dispensaries and our applicants that are currently in process of getting an application uh, through the system for state licensing can open again for a product that can be purchased by the caregiver network. We also asked that the applicants that are currently under appeal that have been denied a license can also have a status quo and operate by purchasing from the caregiver network. Ironically, after we filed the lawsuit on Monday, on Tuesday, our new governor issued a recommendation, although she can't tell the board what to do. She issued a recommendation, pretty much basically what was in our lawsuit, asking Laura to adopt those um, uh, relief that we requested. So by Wednesday, we were working with Lara, one of my associates, um, Mitch Zajak, was working, and myself with Lara, and we worked uh, together with the regulation before it was signed. And what happened is they allowed the caregiver network to sell to our licensed okay. dispensaries, to our applicants who are waiting to be licensed, and to our applicants that are on appeal. So they were shut down for a short time, but now they're reopened. We have over 300,000 patients in Michigan that didn't have access for a few weeks. And that, um, quite honestly, is not fair to the patients. No, it, it isn't. But it's also it also speaks to the confusion that exists around this issue here in the state of Michigan. Um, and for those people in, in the caregiver network, okay, they've got a temporary ability to restart their operations. Um, but... Given that they were basically shut down for a little while in the first place, how many of them are up and ready to, to supply at this point in time? Well, the caregivers can still supply to their patients, but yes. what they're allowed to do now is they can sell to the, the provisioning centers. So that's a, a bigger market for them to sell, although they can only grow a certain amount, exactly. 72 plants. There's a lot of caregivers that the licensed and waiting to be licensed provisioning centers have to go find. But luckily, there's a market for the caregivers out there to sell, and hopefully the supply will increase as the caregivers can temporarily work through that chain, uh, the supply chain. But the um, the downside to this is that the caregiver network is only available until March 31st. So more than likely, we're going to have to go back to the Court of Claims and ask them to open up that a little bit longer because they're assuming that there's going to be a product available April 1st. They're assuming. That's right. a big assumption. Um, right. given, given the way that the state is working on this and, um, you know, like I said, with the, the recreational side coming on, it's sort of thrown everything into, into a bit of chaos here. Uh, what is the likelihood that the licensing process for these medical facilities is going to be completed in time so that these people can actually know whether or not their businesses are going to operate? Well, that's a very good question. There's um, a lot of applicants that are still in the process. Last year, if you were operating under a temporary license by the municipality, you had to apply by February 15th. There are still some applicants that are in that mix, and then there's new applicants that didn't fall under that rule. So the time period to push an applicant through is a long period. It's a long, tedious process, and it's voluminous documents and uh, a lot of information that needs to be given. Well, where's the holdup, though? I mean, what are some of these people struggling to provide that the state is asking for? I mean, is there any type of is there is there one particular roadblock that we seem to be hitting time and time well, again? Well, I, I think what happens is, and a lot of them are being denied for non-disclosure. So, unlike some other applicant applications that you have to apply for, the only thing that I can akin it to is a liquor license. 
but this is a little bit more stringent because of the product that's involved. There's a lot of financial records that have to be given, and it's three years' worth of every single statement of every financial institution that the applicant has an interest in. So if you have a business or if you have accounts with your children, um, if you're missing an account, that gets flagged, and the non-disclosure and the criminal activity. So it's not just have you been convicted, it's have you ever been arrested, which is a big difference, which is normally what we see on job applicants. Sure. So so anybody who's been arrested for anything, regardless of whether it has anything to do with this industry or not, is going to be red flagged. Uh, red flagged and you have to disclose. So if you get in front of the board and you did not disclose, for example, you were in college, you had disorderly conduct, uh, you might have been arrested for that, but not ultimately charged. It was dismissed. You were in a bar fight. You had some type of altercation. If you don't disclose that, more than likely you may or may not get your license. It's all about <laughs> disclosure. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I get that. Uh, but it, it still seems as if, though, the state isn't quite sure exactly how they're going to deal with this. As you mentioned, it's more stringent than a liquor license, although you know we've seen the records on what liquor versus marijuana does. Um, is it fair that these requirements are stricter than it would be for other legal products? Because this is a legal product now. Uh, well, it's legal in it's, Michigan. In, in Michigan, it's only legal in Michigan. So unlike alcohol, which is a legal product in all fifty states, and we can transport it through commerce depending on the, the state statutory laws, um, it still is a, a class one narcotic in certain instances. So although it's legal in Michigan. It's not legal federally, so we still have those roadblocks that we have to deal with. Do you find that most of the people who are getting into this business um, are you know, pretty up-to-date on, on everything that they need to do to do this, or do they just think it's going to be an easy business to get into and, you know quick money and, and it's easy. It's, it's not as easy as they think, I'm guessing. No, it's, it's definitely not easy. Um, I find that uh, most of my clients are, are, are business people that have had other types of businesses that uh, they've run in, in various industries. So it's a business with any other product. It's just a different widget, but you have to have a business mind to run this type of business. You know, we're not um, dealing with somebody off the street. Obviously, there's a lot of money that's to be made, but again, it's a business. You still have overhead and you still obviously have profit, but it's a business. Well, have we figured out the banking stuff yet? No. <laughs> so basically, it's still a cash business. It's still a cash business. Until it is passed federally, there are no banks that will accept these funds. Wow. So, my, I, I should remind folks, my guest right now is Michelle Donovan. She, of course, is an attorney with Butts Along and uh, is the co-chair of the firm's Cannabis Law Specialty Team. And, and I have to ask you this question from a personal level. The Cannabis Law Specialty Team, everything has changed so dramatically just in the last couple of years here in Michigan um, and nationally. I mean, we've got other states. There's now interstate commerce issues that are at play here. How difficult has it been to sort of keep up with the changes um, and to keep people informed of those changes? Well, that's an interesting question. I actually had a, a meeting with my um, my group today, and the information is literally coming in, in in waves. We're trying to determine how we can disseminate this information as quickly as possible to the public. We get alerts all day long from uh, different states, from Michigan. It's not unusual for Lara to issue an emergency ruling uh, today, even while we're sitting here. So we are trying to keep up with uh, this changing industry that literally happens uh, at the turn of a dime. I'm, I, I, I'm wondering if, if you get a sense that the state is acting with the urgency necessary for this. I mean, given that we are talking about medical marijuana here at this point in time, are they treating that differently than the people who are going to be dispensing for 
recreational purposes? Are they slow walking that or are they recognizing that there is a difference in terms of the patient's needs here and just the regular guy out there that just wants to smoke a lot of pot? Well, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> well, although it's been legalized here in Michigan, there are no rules. There's no regulations. So there's they haven't a year until the end of this year to start those regulations and rules. So as of right now, there's the no... Wild dra- it, there's the Wild West. So you can't purchase it or sell it, but you can possess it, which is kind of an oxymoron. Well, you can grow it. You can grow it in your own home, but you can't sell it. I couldn't sell it to you, but I could give it to you as a birthday present. But I couldn't give it to you as a birthday present on a condition that you're going to buy um, a painting from me, and I'm going to throw that in. Well, we're seeing that happen, though. Yes, we are. I mean, you buy a T-shirt, and you get whatever as a gift. Right. Um, And it seems like that's the kind of thing that the state's going to be cracking down on soon. I would think so, because that's not the intent. No. You know, it's not the intent that I'm going to pay $50 for a munchie bag and get, you know, my my free pot on the side. That, That was not the intent. At the same time, the way it was written... It seems like it's just a loophole. I don't know if they're going to run to close that or if that's something that just may sort of be the way it goes. Because that seems to be a way to get around a lot of the rules about selling marijuana. It gets around the delay with dispensaries for people who do want to supply. Uh, Is there any way they can stop that? Uh, they would have to issue the rules and regulations. So rec hasn't even been started yet. There's no recreational rules. So more than likely, Lara might mirror what we have for medical. Be, I mean, what we do have is a framework, and they can look at that and decide what works and what doesn't. Because once rec comes in, it's a whole different ballgame. You're not going to have the patient cards there that you're going to swipe when you come in. I mean, granted, you do have to be 21 to purchase, you know, just like if you're purchasing alcohol, but you're taking away, it's not for medical anymore. So the medical marijuana dispensaries or provisioning centers will be in play for a while until that may or may not phase out. I'm also wondering if you are getting a sense that communities are going to be treating medical marijuana facilities differently than they are regular dispensaries, because we've seen a number of communities rush to say, hey, we don't want dispensaries in our community. But at the same time, if you're depriving somebody access to medicine, that's a different story. Do you get a sense that those licensing requirements and and, um, uh, zoning requirements may change a little bit based on the type of dispensary that you want to operate? Absolutely, because a lot of the municipalities have opted in for medical for a certain amount of licenses, again, like liquor licenses. So a municipality might only have uh, two licenses for a provisioning center medical, but they might opt out for rec. So how does that affect the business owner that has the medical provisioning center and then RAC doesn't come into that municipality and eventually you won't need the medical card anymore to purchase it? And how's that going to change things for the medical providers? I mean, I, I understand the quality control aspect of things and somebody wants to make sure that they're getting something that is going to be specifically tailored to uh, their ailment and there are different types of, of, of pot, obviously, that, that have different impacts and you know different products. Uh, but, you know, they're so worried about things like gummies on the recreational side and, and you know, some of these things. Is that going to impact people's ability to produce things like creams and salves and, and some of the other things that are out there? They'll they'll still produce them, but everything, as far as medical, again, no, no guidelines for RUC. But as far as medical, everything has to be packaged and weighed and has to have a, a specific ratio and formula. Uh, black baggies for gummies. Now we have the universal uh, green triangle symbol to know that there's THC uh, in the product and it's not for children, but um, the packaging will probably have to be something similar, locked down so that you can't easily assess it. But you'll probably still have the same types of products, the creams, the bath bombs, the edibles. I mean, there's just 
uh, a myriad of products that you can purchase in this industry. Well, there <laughs> certainly are. And, and uh, last question, I don't even know if you can answer this one, but you know, from from my spectator position, watching the way the state was handling this towards the towards the middle and end of last year. Um, looking at them all of a sudden cracking down on the dispensaries that already existed, making people reapply for their licenses. It certainly seemed as if they were trying to slow walk this and sort of maybe even put the kibosh on some of these businesses in their communities. Uh, Almost a knee-jerk reaction to the fact that they knew this was coming. We better get a handle on it now in some capacity. Uh, Am I right about that? Well, politics played more of a role in this than, than science. Uh, yes, and so there have been communities that have, uh, quite honestly, used uh, enforcement to shut down a lot of these um, businesses, but then you have to go through the exercise of reopening them again, so there's lost profits for that. And again, it, it's medical, it's for the patients at this point. But yeah, there have we, we have seen instances of that, but ultimately they get back open because they're allowed to sell and they're allowed to be open pending their application, however long that takes. Does somebody have potentially a case, though, if they've been I mean, they were open, operating underneath the rules at the time. All of a sudden, they weren't. Uh, is there potential for, for legal action here or some sort of recourse for the fact that y- you lost a lot of money potentially being closed for a few months? Well, um, there have been cases as to that effect, and normally uh, when the lawyers get involved, they get reopened pretty quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, we have seen those in the past. Not so much anymore since they're going through the application procedure uh, with the state of Michigan, but, yeah, there have been quite a few of those. Well, when you take a look at what's going on right now, and, again, we are going to spend the next year trying to figure out what these regulations are for, for recreation marijuana, but you know, for the people that you're working with, the clients you're representing that are on the medical side, are they concerned about their own businesses? What's going to happen if people don't need to get a script anymore? Yes, that has come up, and hopefully, um, when will they be allowed to transition? Yes, that's a very really good question. Hopefully, they're either at, they give some preference to them because they already have a license. They've already gone through this rigorous background check and scrutiny to uh, you know get the license, which costs sixty six thousand dollars a year. I don't know what rec's going to be, but there needs to be some sort of procedure in place for the ones that already have the license if they can then be grandfathered in and then just transfer that to a recreational license. But if they're in a municipality that doesn't allow rec. They have a medical dispensary, and they um, may or may not be able to have a rec license. Then they have to move and find another location. So that's going to be really interesting how that plays out. I am interested to know, though, and I haven't seen the statistics on this, but how much more willing the medical community is to actually prescribe in the first place these days? Uh, Because... You know, you need patients. Um, right. and, and a lot of people would have been afraid to go to their doctor before to get this prescription because they would have felt weird asking or whatever, whatever stigma is attached to it. Do you find that the medical community is more willing to actually? I think it, I think it depends. There's still some stigma as to exactly what this is and, and why it's there. And obviously there, it's in conflict with the pharmaceutical companies, um, because it's, it's really, I mean, if you want to get down to it, it's homopathic, you know? Um, and I think there are some doctors that are willing, but I think patients still are a little, um, embarrassed and uh, don't want to get the scrutiny from their actual physician that they want this type of card. And so they seek the doctors out that do this um, maybe after hours or part-time that will interview the patients, make sure they have the requisite medical conditions because there's a list, and then they fill out the form for them to fill it into the state to get the card. But I don't think it's um, as open as we would think to go to our doctors and say, hey, could you sign off on my request for a medical marijuana uh, card? Oh, well, I, <laughs> this whole thing is, is so confusing to me. I mean, I... 
something that I think is overdue, personally. I just, it just doesn't make sense that we have been prosecuting people for possession of marijuana as much as we have over the years. And that's a different discussion. Um, all that, you know, later on we'll talk about expungement someday and all this kind of stuff. But um, what are you concerned about going into this, this sort of year of uncertainty that we have here? Well, I think um, as far as this industry, it's pretty much a day by day. So right now, um, what I'm most concerned about is my clients having the product to sell. So we know that we're on a short deadline of March 31st. Come March 31st, there better be a lot of growers that have a product that is processed that they can buy. And I, I don't see that happening. Uh, did anybody stockpile any of this stuff beforehand, just knowing? Or was it, has it always been sort of an on-demand kind of business? It's on-demand because there's just not enough so just growers. just-in-time delivery for this, too. Just-in-time delivery, and the prices are so high because, you know, it's like oil. It's like we're in, a, we're in a shortage right now, so everybody's running out trying to get their barrels or putting them on reserve waiting for the next, you know, crop to come in. But um, it'd be interesting to see what happens come April 1st. I, I, Just my own opinion, I don't think there's going to be enough growers. Because even the growers that are getting licensed, let's say last week that were approved, they have to start. And who knows if those plants are going to be harvested in time. You get a sense though, that there are going to be some serious commercial interests getting involved in this and growing on, on a large scale, greenhouses, that sort of stuff. Um, any indication that uh, you know some of those bigger licenses are going to be coming through anytime soon? Well, keep in mind that a Class C license is 1,500 plants. And if someone wants to come in from out of state, right now the way it's set up is that there has to be a Michigan presence. So what, what we have done is... So they're looking is, for partners, is what you They're looking saying. for partners, but, <laughs> but everything is locally grown, owned, and sold right now. So we can't export, we can't import. Uh, we can sell to patients from out of state that have a patient ID card. So we can sell to our neighbors to the south, Ohio. They can come in and we can sell to them in our provisioning centers. Uh, we can sell to our Canadian friends, but we can't export anything and we can't bring anything in. So our shortage has to be fixed within the Enchanted Mitten here. So we, we cannot, uh, and those commercial growers are looking to come in, but they have to have a Michigan presence. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it right there for now. Michelle Donovan, thank you very much. We'll have you back because this is going to change, as you said, from day to day, and we'll see what it, where it goes. Thank you for having me. Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor, and The Trip, wise relationship advice with hosts Megan Slattery and Tracy Evans. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Glad to have you with me on this Thursday. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the program today talking about a story uh, that broke. Uh, and of course, Mayor Duggan was touting this yesterday that property values in the city of Detroit are up substantially for the first time in a long time. So property values have really increased not just in a few neighborhoods in the city, which we've seen in recent years, but on a number of neighborhoods. 90% of the city's neighborhoods uh, have seen some gains, and many of them gains of about 20%, which is a very, very significant increase in the value of property in the city of Detroit. Now, the city assessor's office is suggesting that the value of residential property in the city added about $400 million in value. Commercial property values also increasing. The number they threw out there yesterday was about 35%. Now, the good thing about this is, is that means that the recovery in Detroit is spreading beyond just the downtown area or the 7.2, as many of us like to talk about. 
but it also has sparked a lot of fear amongst residents. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. I want to get to some of these discussions that I've had over the past few years in the city of Detroit with a number of residents that are concerned about improving property values and how they are basically making a mistake in in equating property values and property taxes and what that's going to mean. Now, I do want to start out by suggesting this. There are still a number of hurdles when it comes to buying residential property in the city of Detroit. Something I'm very, very familiar with. It's still too difficult to get a mortgage in the city of Detroit for a traditional sale. Now, it's getting better. We've seen the numbers go up over where they were, of course, in this, in this post, uh, post-recession time. It is getting better, but it's still not where it needs to be. And there's a number of neighborhoods uh, that still are shut out of the, of the mortgage market which is a hugely important thing because people cannot buy houses with cash all of the time. In a number of neighborhoods, you still see a lot of land contracts and cash sales. No guarantees that these people are going to have the money they need to maintain these properties or bring them back uh, to where they once were, their former glory. There's a lot of different things that we still need to fix there. There's a lot of unregistered land contracts that need to be looked at, need to be watched because people are still getting ripped off. These are things that we need to stop. So I do not want to suggest that everything is rosy in Detroit's neighborhoods when it comes to the real estate market. They are not, but they are improving, and that's a good thing. But the interesting thing that I have seen over the years when talking about rising property values and fixing up houses in neighborhoods and improving neighborhoods is the people who are living there, even the homeowners, are concerned that if their neighborhood improves in any way, that they are somehow going to be priced out of their homes. So I went on Facebook yesterday. And I put a post out there talking about this. And and basically, all I said on Facebook was, I'm constantly shocked at how many homeowners complain about property values going up in their neighborhoods because they think that their property taxes will go up at the same rate. And the simple thing is, is that's not how it works. Property taxes in Michigan, because of Proposal A, are capped at 5% per year or the rate of inflation, whichever is lower. And this year, inflation is quite low. So most property owners in the city of Detroit, according to Mayor Duggan, might see about a 1% increase in their property taxes, while in many neighborhoods seeing over 20% increase in value. That means equity in people's homes that maybe hasn't been there in a long time. So rising property values are great for homeowners. It's a way to build wealth. It is a way to build equity in that home. And then if you ever need to sell it or you need to move or you want to pass that house on, it has some value. And that could be cash in your pocket. That could be cash for the next generation. That could be a home that somebody can afford to invest in because the house is worth enough to do so. That preserves neighborhoods. That preserves the housing stock. People are not going to invest a lot of money in fixing up a house if the property values are going down. But I went to countless neighborhood meetings in my time at the Detroit Land Bank. I was uh, in charge of uh, community engagement, and we would have meetings out in the community all the time, whether it was with council members, whether it was our own meetings that we were doing, or piggybacking on the Department of Neighborhoods, or the mayor's meetings. We were out all the time with tables, talking to residents. I took hundreds of phone calls over the course of the years, talking to people about property values and property taxes. The fear that people's taxes are going to become unmanageable is real in Detroit. For many people, they own their homes free and clear. The only payment they have to make on these homes is indeed their property tax. And let's be honest, property taxes in Detroit were out of whack for a long time. But when your property taxes are going up but your values are not, that's where the mismatch is. Most real estate markets, property values go up, not always by huge double-digit numbers like this, but usually 1%, 2 3% a year. 
And that's fine. That keeps up with inflation. It means your house value is going up. And hopefully, as you pay down the mortgage, you have increasing equity in the home. And we are so far removed, decades removed from that in Detroit, that frankly, the mindset is, is that people aren't used to this. They're not used to increasing property values. And the last time they saw their property values increase may have been before Proposal A, which was back in 1994. And so therefore, back then when your property's value went up, they would come out and reassess every year and say, oh, here's the new value, here's your new property tax bill. They can't do that anymore. The lack of information about that property tax cap that exists in the neighborhoods is hurting people. They see values going up. They're actually, I've seen people saying, I don't want my neighbor fixing up that house next to me because I'm worried that my property taxes are going to go up. And that's just not the way it works. So I put this out there on Facebook yesterday and was surprised at how many comments that I got. And I want to share some of them with you because I think that they're valuable perspectives on this one. Suzanne chimed in and said simply, my property values can't go up enough. I'm still underwater in my mortgage after almost 15 years of paying on it. And Suzanne, I think that's a familiar story in the city of Detroit. Now we have Sean who says, I agree it is good news, great news for the city, though the taxes are not fully capped, maximum 5% growth per year. Now again, I want to clarify, it's 5% maximum or the rate of inflation, whichever is lower. That's what the law specifies. Now, Angeline chimed in with an important perspective, and I wanted to read this one because I thought she was bringing a different perspective in there. Angeline says, it depends on who they are. If that's all they know and don't plan to leave because they think they, quote, can't go anywhere else, they feel like they'll be priced out of their homes. Some don't see home ownership as having an asset that they can use, but a safe place to live that is more stable than renting. It really depends on who we're talking about. I don't subscribe to that mentality, but I certainly understand it. That was a really important point here. They think they can't go elsewhere else, and they're looking at their homes just as something where they don't have to up the rent every year, but they're not looking at it as an asset, something that could grow in value. That's what property value decreases in Detroit have done to the mentality of residents that live there. They don't see their home as an asset. They see it as something slightly more stable than renting. And I thought that was a really sort of great thing to point out because I, en- I encountered this constantly, constantly. People looked at their house as a burden, but it was better than renting because they didn't have the potential to be thrown out. As long as they kept up with their taxes, maybe they paid cash for the house. They don't see it going up in value, but they don't see it necessarily going up because their, their payments are stable. And so if they get a property tax increase of any type, that's more money out of their pocket to stay in a house that is slightly better than paying money to a landlord. What we hope to see is the return of the understanding that rising property values create equity in the home. It creates a cash fallback if you need it. If you have to sell your property, you want to move, you can do it and actually make money. It's been so long since we saw that, that there frankly needs to be, I think, a better outreach effort on the part of the city, the land bank, and everybody else in the housing department, HRD, Housing Revitalization Department, to help people understand how increasing property values are good for them. When I see people in certain neighborhoods actually discouraging people from moving in and fixing up their property because they're worried about this stuff, that tells me that we need to do a better job of educating people on how the housing market works, how, how housing finance works, and how every other community works. Not every other community, obviously. There have been a number of places that have seen decreasing values, but nothing like we've seen in Detroit. And there are a number of people that need to figure this out 
and understand that when the property values go up and you're a homeowner, your boat rises with the tide. Now, renters, renters on the other hand, if indeed the property values go up, you have somebody that owns a home who's a landlord, invests in it, he might want to charge more for rent in that same neighborhood. We've seen this in improving neighborhoods, and it's not a Detroit thing, it's a, it's a nationwide thing. That's something that we need to be cognizant of. Um, and if you're a landlord and you're maintaining your house, you know, you, you do have a right to charge enough money to, to make your money back. That's, that's what it is. But for so long, there have not been the incentives for landlords or even property owners to fix up their house because the return on that investment was not going to be there. Hopefully, hopefully that's something that's going to continue to change. We're going to see continued increases in the neighborhoods because that makes it more of an investment opportunity for people that are there. Maybe we convert more renters into homeowners so they actually see the benefits of home ownership, And maybe we see more mortgages getting written in the neighborhoods in Detroit because without that, without that, you will never stabilize this market in a way that it functions properly. We're getting better. We're getting closer. There are still lots of things that have to be worked out. But I would like the city to see the city go out there and really do a great job and have a number of series about homes, about home ownership, about property values, property taxes, put it in simple, understandable terms that people can get behind and understand and see the value of what they may already own and see how they can utilize, utilize that increase in value to their benefit. Overall, it's a net positive. And maybe, just maybe, we can change the mindset of people and convert a lot of those people who have been renting for so long into homeowners in the city of Detroit so that they too can enjoy the benefits. I hope that makes sense. I'm Craig Folly. Tune in tomorrow on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. We are going to do the Friday Follies. Looking forward to that. We'll make a little bit of fun of the things that have happened in the news this week. And uh, with this continued government shutdown, I'm not sure it's very funny. But the posturing by some of the politicians certainly is. So we'll get into that. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget, check out DeadlineDetroit.com every day. Your one-stop shop for all your news needs. I'll see you tomorrow. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services.